0: Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is The Best Kept Secret, a conversation about an aspect of Catholic teaching that's not very well known, that is Catholic social cheating or social justice. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Cormac McCann. Welcome, Cormac. Thanks, Peter. And by Mark Shea, who's coming to us from across a large ocean from Seattle in the USA, mostly because he has, in fact, recently published a book um, called A Primer on Catholic Social Teaching, The Church's Best Kept Secret. Now, I'm privileged enough to have read a forward copy of this, and I highly recommend it for starters. But we're going to be talking about uh, the approach to this and why it's an important topic. primer on this doctrine it's not just that it's about where it sits within catholic social our society and our our kind of the
1: dynamics if you like of catholic politics so the disclaimer here if i could just jump in peter is that by listening to this episode it will no longer be a secret to you (laughs) that's right and that's kind of what what i hope actually in fact i think one of the
0: blurbs i'm just looking at it now one of the blurbs i remember was the greatest hope is that the the title would become obsolete that, <laughs> that, that by reading That's the, the book goal. Sudden, like sudden, it. it's not no longer a um, a best-kept secret That's one right. of the the false dichotomies that you refer to in your book mark is is you open with a story which which provoked it do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about what provoked you
2: uh, yeah i was asked to speak at a local parish and uh it was they wanted me to talk about the church's social teaching and so I stood there at the podium and on, and on the one side of the room, there was the peace and justice group. And on the other side of the room was the pro-life group. And those guys hated each other. <laughs> and I was like, Very Catholic, love it. how can you not <laughs> see that you have the same mission? Uh, in the, in the eyes of the church, uh, the, the. The work that they're doing is is supposed to be in harmony with one another. And that's really what I'm trying to address with the church's best kept secret. By the way, the title is The Church's Best Kept Secret, a Primer on Catholic Social Teaching. And, Sorry about that. That's okay. It's just easier to find if you if you know the title. Um but um, <laughs> if you're not an ignorant, schmuck, Holmes. <laughs> But go uh, on. Uh, do go on. So, so the <laughs> the the church's teaching is consists of four what I call the four pillars of Catholic social teaching. So those four pillars are meant to be the four legs on the throne upon which sits the human person made so in what the I image and my. likeness of God. So the first is the. Dignity of the human person. The second is, and that has to do with the fact that we are creatures made in the image and likeness of God, and that is where our dignity comes from. It doesn't come from what we do, what we look like, what race we are, our income level, our sexual orientation, none of that. It comes from the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God. The second pillar of Catholic social teaching is the common good. Uh, And that has to do with the fact that if each person is made in the image and likeness of God, then every person is made in the image and likeness of God. And that means every person has a right to the goods of the earth that are necessary for human flourishing. This is not just for the powerful. This is not just for the rich. Uh, It's also, Mark, it's probably worth saying it's also
0: not just... The greatest good for the greatest number either like if the most of us are okay then it's okay it's not that it's because common right, good exactly means every single one
2: every single person uh and so the third i'm going through these fast because i want to get it all in the third pillar of catholic social teaching and mark this none of these pillars are in competition and this is this is what makes the church's best-kept secret the church's best-kept secret is not that the church's teaching is hidden It's and it's not that it's confusing it's that we're confused and that's why <laughs> we keep hitting these pillars against one another instead of holding them in harmony so the third pillar of catholic social teaching is called subsidiarity subsidiarity in the church's vision has to do with the fact that since we are all supposed to be participants uh, in building the common good for the dignity of the human person, here I got those two to harmonize, uh, Magic. since we're supposed to be, in fact, sacraments to the world, personally involved in the work of God in uh, the redemption of the human person and the renewal of the face of the earth, that means that we have to play a personal role In that work, we can't just write a check and hope that somebody else will take care of it. Right. So what that means then is subsidiarity is the doctrine that, as a general rule, the person closest to the problem should be the one to handle the problem. Right. Uh, So if you need a loaf of bread, here's what you don't do. You don't phone the White House. And ask we'll the, the streets, yeah, or ask the hundred and first Airborne to airlift you a loaf of bread. What do you do? You go buy a loaf of bread, or you bake a loaf of bread. And look, the problem was taken care of. No act of Congress required. So that's subsidiarity, and the idea of subsidiarity is that you only go up the ladder of authority. When the person closest to the problem can't handle it. So if I can't bake the loaf of bread because I'm out of work because of COVID uh, and I don't have any money, then you go up the ladder of authority to whatever is appropriate. So you apply for unemployment, for example, if you can't find a job. And then, yeah, somebody higher up the ladder of authority steps in and is providing you with money until you can get a job. But that's the idea, is you only go up the ladder of authority if you have to. Sometimes you have to go way up the ladder of authority because that's appropriate. And then sometimes uh,
1: the person at the top of the ladder is really not well-equipped, not many better well, equipped al- than the person at the bottom.
2: Well, almost always. Uh, but the thing <laughs> is is that the state exists for a reason. Right. Uh, the church is not really compatible with a libertarian view that the state is always something that you need to be able to drown in the bathtub. Uh, sometimes the state is absolutely necessary. You know, I don't it was think not guys... that definition before. <laughs> uh, welcome <laughs> to bathtub. America. Uh, but Freedom. Uh, uh, but it, you know, it was not. For example, uh, a bunch of guys in rowboats who took their dad's shotgun and rode across the Atlantic to oppose Hitler. It was the state that organized that. It was the state that built our interstate system, and, no doubt, your interstate system as well. Mm. Uh, and so that's this is, right now, we're in the middle of a pandemic that absolutely requires a global, coordinated, state-coordinated response among multiple states. This is not going to be something that's solved by a guy with his uh, chemistry set in his mom's basement.
0: Now, we should be clear uh, so, about that, that, that when we talk about the state engagement, that doesn't leave aside questions of whether the, the, the state has to act morally. Uh, it doesn't automatically grant a free reign to the state to do whatever it not. wants. It, they, of, of course, course have to answer to the moral principles, but it, clearly in terms of their capacity to address these problems, we're talking about the, the state's capacity to address something right. that's so broad.
2: Yeah. Right. Uh, and so, uh, well, that... More or less covers subsidiarity for for the moment. And then finally, the last pillar of Catholic social teaching is solidarity. And solidarity has to do with the fact that we are both as a species, uh, and also this is double underscored uh, by our baptism, we are involved in a mystical union with one another. We cannot say to any other person on planet Earth, your end of the Titanic is sinking. Too bad for you. Uh, (laughs) That won't fly, and it especially won't fly if you're baptized. You can't say it even in a state of nature. You cannot say it even merely as a son of Adam, but as a baptized member of the body of Christ, there's no way you can say that. I think in Uh, the
0: book you quote John Dunn, one of my favorite poets, in fact, um john dunn's no man is an island um as you're right. opening to that particular chapter um right i didn't i read the poem and i hadn't seen it in the old english which is absolutely great oh, by the way to it's have beautiful it. isn't it yeah <laughs> but yeah, the i no huge is an fan island. of done no man is an island comes comes to that culmination of the line we know but i hadn't seen in this context before um any man's death diminishes me because i am involved in mankind Right. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. In other words, if someone dies, that was the dies, exact
1: line I was thinking of. it's <laughs> the one that flattered to yeah. my mind as soon as you said that. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. It's
0: exactly that. I mean, the whole that the, when anybody dies, we're all invested, we're all interested, and and also death right. is a tragedy. We kind of say, ah, oh, you know. But one of the things that really scares me about the the COVID thing is people go, yeah, but it's only old people dying. You know what? Death is always a tragedy. It's always <laughs> right. a tragedy. The, the brightness, yes, exactly. and brilliance, right. and and uniqueness of every human life is always tragic uh, when it ends. Right. And if if there's any way we can we can prevent that, we should okay. attempt to do so. Um, but all of these four things have to, of course, come together. I mean, we don't want to right. state that. Um, what's the what's that iRobot? robot? Is that the one? No, that's not the right one. What the the sci-fi where the robots take over from. And they decide to protect humanity. The best way is to kill us all. Then we can't do anything bad. It is. It is our (laughs) robot, isn't it? It's Will (laughs) Smith.
2: Except it was set
1: futuristically in 2035, and I'm not sure we'll get there. (laughs) So we just
2: we just passed the expiration date for uh, Blade Runner. So uh, yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah,
0: 1984 was a long time ago too. The point, I think, we of your book, and one of the things that's very good about this, is that there are people who do actually fight for care of the poor, for justice. We, often, we have a lot of people interested in social justice in the Catholic Church. There are often social justice groups mm-hmm. in local parishes. But as mm-hmm. you've pointed out, there seems to have been, I think, one of the most insidious lies um, that has infiltrated the Church is that you either are pro-life in terms of Dealing with abortion and euthanasia, etc., or yeah. you are in fact um, social justice, as if these two right. were in some way opposed to each other. Right, but and in they're fact, not. Well, they're, and, and the the, 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 the problem. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the life issue is is a subset of the entire dignity of the human person, um, right. and the common good, and all these things can be argued from that. And to to right. it's almost a victory to the the enemy to set these two ideals against each other. Can you,
1: can you explain to one of you um, just exactly how they are uh, perceived as being in competition and what we mean by the dichotomy between the two well oh, what sure. tends
0: to happen in in um, australia at least is that people tend to if you raise arguments against abortion for example or against euthanasia they'll raise arguments for justice in particular circumstances but what about this circumstance or that circumstance um Mm -hmm. and and don't you care about the women involved or don't you care about rape or don't you care about all these in other words there's no it's as if it's an isolated issue that you're that that the pro-life organization is putting one good that is the ability to be alive ahead of every other possible good and then when you talk to the pro-lifers sometimes they talk as if you could you could break every other rule so long as you kept people alive right um so for example the the Lying for Jesus scandal in the U.S., where, where people thought it was okay to deceive and lie it, so long as we were against Planned Parenthood.
2: Right. We're seeing the outworking of it in the United States right now. Uh, so, again and again, the argument that you run into, and in the United States we've run into it for 35 years, is it, it falls out this way. Why do you care about capital punishment when 800,000 babies are being aborted a year. These are just criminals, and it's always been okay to execute criminals, so why should we listen to the church about this when abortion is happening? Why should we, I heard this one a lot during the Iraq war, why should we care about torture when babies are being tortured to death in abortion? Why should we care about a minimum wage when abortion is going on? And so over and over again, what's being spoken is we need to treat abortion as, or euthanasia, but mostly abortion, as the non-negotiable issue. But all the rest of these things are completely negotiable. Now, my argument in the book is that it's true that you can certainly focus, if your call is to be fighting on the front lines against abortion, then great. But here's how it doesn't work. In the church, we understand that different people have different gifts and charisms. Different organizations do different things, as Paul says, uh, you know, the eye cannot say to the hand, "I don't need you." Uh, it's the body working together. So Jesuits found universities, and uh, you know, Mother Teresa's order is taking care of the poorest of the poor. Uh, in various places, or you know, you've got different people who have different gifts and, and talents and, and so forth. And God bless them for doing that. Here's what Jesuits don't do Jesuits don't say, Why are we wasting time taking care of sick people in Calcutta when there are universities to be founded? Uh, <laughs> people in you know, the, the, the Sisters of, of Mercy don't say, Why are we wasting time? uh, you know, fountain building, uh, hospitals when we're doing this thing in, in Calcutta. And the mistake, uh, that a lot of, uh, unfortunately a lot of people in the pro-life movement and at least in the United States have made is that they have taken the unborn and pitted them against rather than relating them to all the other missions that the church is doing. So saying, for example, why do we care about the minimum wage? Why do we care about a living wage? We care about a living wage because without a living wage, you can't start a family. The number one abortifacient in the United States is poverty. That's why we care about a living wage. These things are not opposite from one another. They are related to
0: one another we're living in australia which has a, a i have to say i hate to be judgmental but our, our welfare system is is quite um a lot more advanced i would say in terms of meeting those requirements it's not judgmental
2: it's dead right we, <laughs> we've got we a very a, good th- welfare we, system and, we and are a backward third world country in the united states <laughs> when it comes to so we truly
0: are uh, my my main excitement about the book is that it, it It doesn't say, you pro you silly pro-lifers, you're wrong. It says, you're right, but you're not right. You're not, your gaze is not broad enough at this point. Be
2: more pro-life, not less. And you said the same thing to the social
0: justice groups who would denounce the pro-lifers. And you said, open up and be more pro-life, not less pro-life. So the point of it is, is that it's Catholic. It's a universal teaching. It covers all of these rights. What interests me a lot is, and if I can broaden this a little wider, you do address institutional um, sins in your book, uh, sort of systemic sin.
2: Structures of sin. Structures yeah. of sin.
0: And um, one thing I've noticed is that as I'm reading through the Old Testament more and more, I come across many, many of the laws that governed Israel in the Old Testament are about protecting the poor, the preferential option for the poor, yes. um, protecting those who uh, don't have any power against those who do, protecting the poor against the rich, protecting wives against their husbands, so to speak. There's lots and lots of laws which are about making sure right. that the balance of power insists that those who have power and authority and money use it for the benefit of those who don't, Yes, and that that can't be abused the other way around. Now, a huge, a huge portion of the Old Testament is invested this way. Christ himself reinforces this when he talks about the poor and the rich in the Gospels, and mm-hmm. we see it come through in Paul um, in terms of, you know, the rich, the, the weaker and the stronger and the richer and the poor, and all those sorts of things. And yet, I only have to post a very mild critique of a publicly listed company which is raking in billions of dollars of profit each year, and I'll get very, very aggressive and um, quite nasty responses from a large number of Catholic friends because yep. I've impugned their reputation in some way. Right. Um they're very aggressive in defending the 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 system of capitalism and particular companies when yep. i don't hear the same kind of cries for justice when there's been uh, you know a wage um fraud uh or you know i haven't heard that come out in the same way when we found out that certain people were defrauding all their all their um employees etc it, it worries mm-hmm. me that there's a focus very much on we we, we We are very lucky, Cormac. I think you'd agree with this. We are very blessed to live in Australia. It's a very, I mean, comparatively to the rest of the world, it has its problems, but it's a very good place to be.
1: Oh, extraordinarily, I'd say, Mark, I don't mind me saying this, but I'd say that Australia is the number one country on the planet by a fair (laughs) margin. It's... (laughs) Modestly, <laughs> modestly speaking, yes. Yeah. But, but, no, okay, but I'll, just, I'll go with that. But just across, I mean, just across the board. Not even looking from the the, the kind of the, the economic conditions that you kind of can be lucky like and the job opportunities, but also like um, you know the, the median salary, like the middle person that you line them up together. Peter, I think we raised this in a previous episode: the median, we did, you know, wage of an Australian versus an American and you count who that middle person is and where they sit substantially higher in Australia, but also the social right. values that I think and, and, and how they are kind of um, uh, transmitted through our institutions are, are relatively stable. Uh, and and it's just that you don't, mm-hmm. I don't think you get a better opportunity, especially then as well, if you really win the lottery and get born into a stable, loving an ideally like faith-filled household or at least someone that can teach you really foundational values about it, how to operate within say for example those four pillars of catholic social teaching like you've you really hit the jackpot i'd say we're in the top one percent you know of the seven point, yeah. however many billion people on this planet but
0: having yeah. said that even in this country where we have it very 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 good there's still um a tendency when when people are looking to to find a, a be- place to belong, a tribe, if you like, there's a tendency to line themselves up with political factions, to line themselves up with right. with social factions in the in the community. And what that tends to do, and I think this is a way we're deceived. I think we are genuinely deceived when this happens. It tends to pit us against ourselves. Yeah. That we tend right. to find ourselves arguing with people we shouldn't be arguing with. Now we might, right. we might, as you say, Mark, we might, for example. I might feel particularly passionate about the unborn. I do. I've watched, um, several, well, 11, um, children in my, uh, through ultrasounds and th- three of them didn't make it, um, to the end mm-hmm. of the pregnancy. And so I, I have a particular passion for the unborn and, and caring for that. Absolutely. I disagree with some of my colleagues on what will actually achieve those ends. I, I'm not convinced that waving, uh, signs with vivid, um, images of, unborn uh, babies will convince other people uh, i can see what their arguments are i disagree with them but I, i'm not prepared to call them evil um or you know that i can see the motivation is there and we right. i think that there's a case for legitimate disagreement of methodology i also think that far too little attention is going to our economic situation in australia there are increasingly Cormac mentioned the very people who are very blessed with having a good family that's less and less the case in Australia now the people aren't growing up with a stable family and 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 good relationships and extended families even it's becoming more and more common for people to be lacking these things and we just simply haven't adjusted our systems that's a passion of mine as well coming from a broken family myself but having said all that it's quite it hurts a lot to see and I think I shared that angst mark that you expressed in the start of the book it hurts to see people pitted against each other who are actually on the same team.
2: Right. And the reason that I wrote the book was precisely because what very rarely happens uh, for Catholics uh, is they don't start with a conception of themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ, Uh, even though, you know, if they've been born or raised Catholic, They don't start there. They start as most people do, with they get their views on things like how to order our common life, how to order our politics or economics and stuff. Where do they get it from? They get it from TV. They get it from radio. They get it from, (laughs) you know, the guy at the water cooler or a significant dream I once had. Or there's this book that I read whose title I can't remember. You know, that's where people start. And then what they do is they go. To the, what they hear from the church, which will mostly be what they hear at Mass if they go to Mass, you know, uh, and then they, they grab from that and say, well, I can use this to accessorize this thing that I already think, and I'll <laughs> just get rid of all this other stuff that I didn't even bother to listen to. Do you think uh, then, and so and what
0: can I challenge you both to, to this question then, yeah. do you think that we are genuinely open as Catholics to being challenged by a homily to being challenged by the gospel because as in am i prepared to hear from the gospel that maybe i need to rethink something that maybe i need to change my focus or maybe i need to pay more attention to something else cormac what do you reckon in australia are we australians open to that kind of challenge from the pulpit
1: Oh, I don't know. It depends how good the priest is at delivering the homily, right? <laughs> you know, you know, someone can you know, it depend. You can put it exactly the same script and put it, by you know, in front of a lively and engaged and energetic priest versus one that isn't, and you know, you know what the yep. outcome is going to be. Um, but I think those moments are, you know, I can't really give an answer on broadly uh, whether Australians do or not. But certainly, I kind of find myself from time to time needing that jolt, um, and, oh, uh, and I, I particularly like. the the principle of subsidiarity solving the problem at the most localised level. If I'm nearest to the problem, I should be fixing that. Like, for example, we have in our community someone who is um, a young soon-to-be mother, or our mother going to give birth soon, and the parish is just, uh, members of the parish have just taken the responsibility of, you know, finding a house, you know, for for her to live in, uh, making sure there's enough money, enough food coming in, that there'll be clothing, that kind of thing. The idea that, you know, Needing to be more pro-life is that, you know, it's, it's about not just that the baby is born, but that, you know, the next 18 years are kind of going to be catered for. What's Where are they going right. to go yeah. to school? Who are their friends going to be? What network are they going to have for support? You make it um, easy, in fact, enjoyable for people to do what's right. That's right. Which yes. is, but, and the flip side as well is the, the, the social justice warrior kind of aspect, which is, you know, my, my one and only weapon is to take to the streets and demand that someone else fix this problem that is so awful, <laughs> you know, rather than getting together and saying, well, how can we impact
0: the situation? I was speaking, I think I've said this before on the podcast, I was speaking to a Papua New Guinean pastor when I was a Lutheran um, seminarian, and we, we got asked what's justice, and we ranted on as students do for about half an hour, and then we turned to him, very uh, magnanimously, and, and asked him, "What do you think?" And he'd been a pastor for thirty years or something, and he said, um, "Injustice is a drunk in our village," and we said, "What?" And he said, "Injustice is a drunk drunk in the village." Now, for him, and this, is, I've studied the Old Testament now for a long time. Justice in the Old Testament is not what necessarily what I've done, because we think of it in terms of blame. Injustice is blame. Like who? Who do we blame for this injustice? Injustice is when someone is not fully flourishing as God intended them to in their full human dignity. And so, if there's a drunk in the village, he says that's an unjust. Well, hang on. Who's to blame? He says it doesn't matter. Probably his family, his wife, him first because he's put himself there. His wife, his family, his cousins. Where did? They, why didn't they pick him up? The next door neighbor. And basically, the pastor went out from everyone who was close enough to have done something about it. Mm-hmm. um now in a big city where we're, I was studying at the time it that homeless people and drunks are, are around more than I'd like and you know you, what do you do I mean it feels so helpless because we're surrounded by so many cases um of where in fact even when I was um pricked in my conscience and tried to help a lot of these homeless guys their problems weren't just that they didn't have ten dollars the problems were much deeper than this uh, especially in Australia where there's a great welfare system And it's not easy to fix. I think that we we tend to, like Cormac says, if if a problem's too big, we tend to kind of go, well,
2: what can you do? I think, with the in in terms of the four pillars, um, one of the best things that we can do. This is why I tried to write the book was start with the church's teaching, begin with the with this thought in mind, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm trying to form my mind according to the church. What does the church say? I, w- let's start there, rather than with whatever the TV just told me.
0: And Or trying to align it to communism or capitalism.
2: Right, yeah. It, it, because the, the fact is, some of the things that the church has to say are what our political categories tell us are conservative, so it's pro-life. But other things that the church has to say, uh, as we're seeing from the reaction of some conservatives to this pope, uh, the reality is that the church also has things to say that are shocking to conservative sensibilities. So, the most controversial statement in my whole book is a direct quote that comes to us from Francis, who is citing Pope Benedict... (laughs) who is himself citing John the 23rd, right? All three of these popes tell us that there is at times a necessity for a, quote, true world political authority. (laughs) There's something to make conservatives have a heart attack. But you know what? That's one of the consequences of subsidiarity. Because what subsidiarity says is stay as close to the problem as is necessary. Well, when you're dealing with a pandemic or climate change, you know what's necessary? A true world political authority. (laughs) That's what's necessary to deal with that problem. And we need to
0: separate that argument, Mark, from from often when I have that argument with people, um, the argument very quickly becomes uh, whether or not the, the current, the things that look a little bit like a world authority in this area, how competent they are, the, whether they're doing a good right. job right now is is irrelevant right. to the argument for them. So for the Australian government, I would argue, isn't isn't um, isn't the world's best example of governments, and yet that's not no the argument is. for having a gov- government.
2: See, <laughs> unlike ours, all you have to do is just look across the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> the glorious United States, and our gleaming model of. <laughs> of government that is uh, providing you know, such yeah. an inspiration to the world. I heard
0: one of the commentators but, uh, um, suggest that you might have a a, na- a national a federal electoral commission, and then a whole bunch of Australians who were with me said, they don't have an electoral commission, because in Australia, you get all the official oversight and results and standards okay. and everything is governed by, am I right there, Cormac? You're the political animal here.
2: Ours it's- is kind of a kludge, because we have 50 states. And so the well, federal government states. has to work. Well, yeah, but not 50 of them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah but our states so, don't
0: set the rules about, um, well, maybe I'm wrong. Cormac, you better correct me on this.
1: Yeah, don't go down that path. It's a fun debate between the state and the federal. But, you know, like if you asked <laughs> who has more of an influence over your daily life, you'd answer that state politics does over federal. It's just that Fed gets all the glam in our world. But if you really want to talk about delivering, Um, You know all kinds of services, primarily from education to policing to hospitals, whatever. That's state level. Yes, that we talk about welfare. That's a federal level, which tends to get more of the limelight when we're talking about um, you know the role again within this context of 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 social justice in particular. A lot of the attention does get absorbed on the welfare kind of question.
0: Yeah, well, but that's uh, that's a good example of subsidiarity there because, for example, the policemen in the local state uh, are things that need to be managed, and the resources and hospitals and things like that need to be managed at a local level because that's what's appropriate. But um, when you're talking about welfare, you're often talking about universal human conditions. You're not talking about, oh, you need welfare because you live in New South Wales. Um, You know, (laughs) it's a human condition and therefore is appropriate to be managed on the national level.
2: Well, getting back to the four pillars, One of the things that I would argue uh, is that there was a development of doctrine uh, which took place at the Second Vatican Council that, as developments of doctrine are wont to do, uh, encapsulated something that the Church has always said, but said it in a way that has never been said before uh, in the history of the Catholic Church. What the Second Vatican Council said, and this is obviously a direct response to the horrors of the 20th century, uh, is that man is the only creature whom God has made for his own sake. Uh, That is, I would argue, a revolutionary development of doctrine. Not revolutionary in the sense that it overturns anything that the church said before. But in the sense that it makes explicit something that was never really clearly spelled out and it has implications that the church has only barely begun to comprehend herself Uh, it was a failure of the bishops to really understand their own teaching which by the way happens all through the history of the church (laughs) peter says we're saved by grace and and uh, not by works of the law uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he makes this declaration and then immediately forgets about it and starts, you know, hanging back from being with Gentiles and is afraid to, you know, eat anything that isn't kosher and all that. Uh, so bishops do this in council. They will enunciate some brilliant insight by the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's what happens at councils, and then they all go home and they forget what they themselves taught. So what happens? They they saw that and then they immediately go back and they start saying, yeah, keep that rape that you suffered at the hands of that priest on the down low because we got this system and the system is more important than you. Right. Um. No. The, ch- <laughs> the church's own teaching is that no system, not a scientific one or a military one or a political one or an ecclesial one, matters, or an economic one, by the way, matters more than the dignity of the human person that man is the only creature whom god has made for his own sake we do not exist for the law the law exists for us we do not exist for a system systems are for our sake right uh that is going to have a gigantic impact on the church going forward well in fairness it took um
0: it took the church three or four hundred years to sort of fully comprehend and implement the council of nicaea so you know, sure. we've still got some time up our sleeve in terms of ecclesial <laughs> to work this out.
2: We've actually been we've moved it a pretty good clip for you know in comparison to most councils. Well, so. in fairness
0: to my friends in in who who have sort of twitched when we mentioned Vatican II. I, yes, I saw you through the podcast there. Um, where they twitched when we mentioned Vatican II, there's a, there's a a part of the discernment of uh, implementing various councils has always been people who take one line from a council's documents or one idea and take it to Mm. just like they use it to justify their own silliness, which is what we've been talking about all along, that people take one part of the doctrine of the church and overemphasize it or perhaps twist it to mean what they'd like it to mean. And then it becomes a problem. So part of our understanding of the, that aspect of Vatican II and other parts is going to be filtering out the waffle and the misinterpretations from what's a genuine um, understanding right. and, and the brilliance of that. I hope, Mark, that you have, in fact, contributed to that through this book. I think you have from what I've read, but I'm a sympathetic audience. So I oh, hope that you. others read it. What they won't find is anything – there's nothing non-Catholic in there. It's completely and utterly in keeping with the Church's teaching. It's very readable, and I, I hope that um, uh, people can use it because it's, it's very much at a – ordinary layman's level too which is what i appreciated
2: about it that was a goal yeah
0: and uh, that's also been true of your other writing so i was pretty confident i have to say when i so i got the copy that i would be able to read it easily can i say thank you very much mark for for not just for writing it but for also being willing to talk about it. it it's a risky thing to do because um you have experienced this mark i know i know cormac's experiences a little bit as well whenever we, we come up with what's a fairly balanced argument at something, we kind of put something forward, we'll often cop someone from either side coming at us and telling us, we're, oh, mm-hmm. you're you're just a communist or you're just a um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fascist or something.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's
0: fairly frequent. And being, being Catholics in Australia usually means we get accused of being ultra-conservatives. Would you say that's true, Cormac?
1: Oh there can be a tendency but like that yeah again that's a bit a little bit of a historical development The the catholics always used to be the working class voters too so you know there's right, been a yes. somewhat of a, an evolution I say into into the more modern era but yeah there's definitely the confusion of you know I guess the our our normal identities catholics being um labeled or boxed politically and that uh, that really diminishes I think you know the the real yeah. diversity within the church
0: Yeah mm-hmm. And the, the message goes, as Mark's books about, that the message goes across all the issues that the dignity of the human person holds up for all things. So often I'll find myself discussing some people you know, pro-life stuff with someone and they'll say, "But what about the woman? What about her plight? And the answer is always yes. Yes, What about? Yes. Let's deal with that. Let's work with everything in this equation. Um, love everybody involved. Everybody um, has the same level of dignity. We are, however, well over time so unfortunately we have to wrap up the discussion okay. that probably leaves us lots more to discuss at a future time but if okay. this discussion got you thinking arguing with your podcast device almost inevitably because we've upset just about everyone i think um you can continue the conversation on instagram <laughs> facebook discord twitter or you can find all the links especially the link to mark's book in the show notes on our website be sure to write us a review on itunes and remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast. We think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. Mark, do you have a shout-out?
2: Uh, do I have a shout-out? Uh, a shout-out to uh, everybody in the Anglosphere who is trying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lovely. Of course. Excellent. Cormac?
1: Yeah, in I particular, I'd just like to give a shout-out to all the... Um, new mums out in the lower blue mountains area we've got plenty of them in the last few months uh, so it's a great time to be having a baby obviously you know with uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting kicked out of hospitals relatively quickly and uh, you guys are absolute heroes so shout out wonderful
0: to you. yeah I, I think i'd like to shout out to extended families um i really miss not having an extended family local um and i miss Uh, the fact that my relations aren't Catholic and therefore don't necessarily share some of the goals we do and and all those sorts of things. And I see that in friends who have that kind of connection and I'm really envious of that. And I think we shouldn't take it for granted. We should strive for an extended community and extended families and we should try. They're difficult to get along with and all that, but we should thank God for them. Um, Thank God for the blessing they are to us. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.